you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. David, what's next? After what? After capitalism. What do you mean? Well, I get that some people don't like capitalism and want it replaced with something else. Some folks want to burn it all to the ground. If that's what we do, what do we do next? Because historically, political and economic vacuums have made things miserable for people. Well, that's why we've invited Hadassah Damien and the spirit of Laura Boone McDonald to continue the discussion that we started last week on capitalism versus anti-capitalism. On this week's episode, 328, we're going to come up with some answers to the questions that we asked last week that can help us all do a little bit better for more people. Well, cool then. Let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Well, welcome back, Hadassah, to the Queer Money Podcast. We've never done this before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to have a guest come a back for two art. repeat episodes. <laughs> right. Uh, All right. Lots of things have changed. Yeah. Folks, obviously you can tell probably the biggest thing is, well, one, we're missing one of the guests because lots of life changes for Laura. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good changes, but still. Yeah. But life changes nonetheless. And lots of life changes for us. This will be mm-hmm. the first episode that we are recording from our temporary podcast booth (laughs) (laughs) bedroom (laughs) in westchester pennsylvania (laughs) on our slow roll to toledo ohio yeah so we're excited about that so cool so thank you hadassah for agreeing to come back we like you said we've never done this before but we just david and i felt like after having the discussion with you and laura about capitalism versus anti-capitalism we definitely have a better understanding we think of your opinions and your perception of, of capitalism as well as, as Lars. But we also felt like walking away, we didn't really come up with like a, a resolution or sort of like a next step or conclusion for folks. We just sort of sort of left it up in the air as this is the one side, this is the other side. And we'd like to give our audience sort of takeaways or, or, or things to consider, ways they can improve or apply concepts to their lives. So just sort of maybe a brief slight recap to what we discussed last time. David and I consider ourselves capitalists, and you and Laura, especially on your podcast, talk a lot about anti-capitalism and your your frustrations and and angst with capitalism. And I sort of wonder, there's a quote from Martin Luther King, I I sort of wonder if this is a great sort of summary of sort of, of how you view things, but he says that, or said that, this country, the United States, has socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. Is that sort of a brief summary of of sort of how you, you, you view this? Hmm. I've always found that quote really interesting and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but it's, I always wonder how people who are in positions of financial privilege, who would beat the rich in that quote would have a take on it. Right. Because certainly though, the the idea of like rugged individualism that applies to the poor is a deeply American held belief. And and something I think a lot about is there's also all these, it seems like mythologies or stories in the US about this idea of bootstrapping and that like you can pull yourself up and you know have a better economic experience than your parents and da da da. 
then we have, you know, media galore about that experience. But we romanticize that. Oh, it's so romanticized, but it doesn't actually happen for everybody. It's not a, a universal experience. And so even for those of us who have been able to have better class experiences than the families we come from, we can look around and say, well, it's not actually happening for everybody. And so this idea of rugged individualism, it's not that it requires certain people to fail for others to succeed, but it doesn't ensure that everybody succeeds. So you, it, it inherent in it is failure, which makes it really brutal. And I think that's the idea in, in that MLK quote, that's where socialism comes in. Because once you're at a certain level of privilege, it's difficult to fail. Even if you fail at a particular enterprise, you're going to have like some sort of financial resilience so you can start a different enterprise or a different one or a different one until you find one that works. And so you get to have a experimentation phase until you launch your successful business, which why shouldn't all of us have that? Why shouldn't we actually want a country full of people who are empowered to innovate, to come up with the most useful, creative, problem-solving things that we could have? I mean, and, and that's where I think capitalism is is so brutal because it disrupts what actually could be a ton of innovation because people are forced to be so focused on covering their basic needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I think back to when you were just talking there, I was thinking back to, I think it was, I want to say it was episode four or five, where mm-hmm. we had Chad Nash on the podcast. And he he kind of talked about that whole idea of nine out of 10 businesses fail. That's right. right. And so just try to start 10 businesses and you'll probably have one that that succeeds. Not everyone has that capability, whether it's mental capability, financial capability, or physical capability, right? I mean, we, we, we run out. And, and it does, I think it does speak to the nature in which things are changing today. Fortunately, it does seem like it is in many ways getting easier for folks mm-hmm. to start businesses or to try to do things. Bootstrapping in the past meant having to come up with thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and maybe not needing to do that so much today, but it still doesn't mean that there aren't barriers for a lot of folks. Totally, totally, totally. I'm thinking of the Cardi B song, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get knocked, knocked down nine times, but I get up 10, right? Like it, she's just using that classic percentage that we talk about in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess I took, the socialism for the rich, more so like when I hear that portion of the quote, I think about Elon Musk, who everybody likes to hate on today. Tesla would not be where it was today, it, where it is today, if it wasn't for all the government handouts that it's getting. Mm-hmm. And not all of us have the leverage, the connections, the power, the money, the, all of that to be able to say, hey, United States government, I hate socialism, but I want you to give me all sorts of money to help get my business started because it would be the panacea for the entire world even though all of us think that our business is the answer for the entire world, right? We all have that same belief. We just don't have that that privilege, that connection, all that. But that's kind of how I, I sort of viewed the, the the socialism for the rich. And then everybody else has to like, you know, just struggle, figure it out. And regardless of whether you get laid off, fired, you know, you have right. challenges that you that don't allow you to work. You just need to suck it up and figure it out or live on the street. <laughs> I mean, and we saw that. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, David. Well, I was just going to say, it's funny that you bring up Tesla because 
I mean, Nikolai Tesla versus Thomas Edison. Go back to, right. you know, that's a very, it's a great example, right? Where one person had all the connections to both capital and access to the decision makers, government wise, mm-hmm. and the other person didn't. And we know history wise who ended up on top in that story. Right, right. Totally. I mean, and what I was thinking about just to kind of illustrate this, like socialism for the rich example was something recent. Again, if we think back to the early days of COVID, businesses got PPP loans that were convertible to grants, like in the order of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, depending on the size of your business and the number of your employees, which was great because it allowed businesses to stay afloat and people to continue getting paid. But then people who didn't open businesses got like $600. (laughs) You know, So it's a question of scale. Right. And it, not to shit on PPP, it's actually a very useful social handout program, which is what it was. <laughs> and it's just, you know, after the fact, when I hear people say, oh, folks got handouts and now we have inflation, I'm like, well, but where did the handouts go? Like, come on, y'all. <laughs> right. right. The most of the money went to Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very right. little of the money actually went to mom and pop, pop and pop. Pop, mom and pop, mom and mom, mom businesses. Mom. <laughs> mom <and> mom. <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know the ones who really needed it. Like yeah. Wells Fargo doesn't need that money, <laughs> right? Right, and like I was working at a bank at the time that all of this was happening, and so we were analyzing who was applying for PPP and what was happening. And I was watching the census data really closely at that time. It was a really. I took a job at a financial institution because I was like, I need to understand how these systems work a little bit more, even from the inside. And it was a really fascinating time to work at FI. Like, I bet. Just because there was so much chaos and human need that was getting addressed. But yeah, like super small micro businesses had a much smaller frequency of people applying for these loans. But you saw a lot of the businesses that had, I mean, technically you were only supposed to apply if you went up to 500 people in your business. So hypothetically, Wells Fargo wouldn't apply. But if you had a subsidiary, hey, you know. always so, a loophole. That, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and the smaller businesses don't have the attorneys and the accountants that can figure out the loopholes or even just convert it into plain English that a the, the everyday small business owner can understand, right? The, the everyday uh-huh. small business owner is is good at making cupcakes, I don't know, running a restaurant, making coffee. Apparently food is on my mind, but <laughs> they're not good at like legal terms and how to apply mm-hmm. for these convoluted applications mm-hmm. and whatnot. But we could go on mm-hmm. forever. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. So my question is, I guess, and I think we sort of touched on this a little bit toward the end of the last episode, but is there a solution? Is there a best case scenario? Or is it is there a fundamental flaw in humans that would pervert any solution? <laughs> Our last conversation got so philosophical. So thank you, John. And, and I remember, and David, I think you called this out at the end of our last conversation too, that it actually seemed like we were more aligned than maybe we had thought coming into the conversation. And so, you know, John, with your question, I'm really thinking, I'm thinking about gradations, right? And I can hear the voice of Laura in my head, who is just like, no, like there is no, there is no version of capitalism that is going to be functional, period. And then I'm hearing, 
I'm just bringing in my own nuanced point of view to say like, well, what new experiment do we need to run, right? That has some of the elements of capitalism that are really functional, right? And embrace autonomy and encourage innovation. And some of the elements of other financial systems, you know, could be socialist systems that offer safety nets to people and also can encourage innovation in, in themselves and, and, and enable care for people who aren't in a position to innovate or contribute, right? And maybe and, not even capitalism. If there was some mm-hmm. other exactly, system, yeah. regardless of what we want to call it, even, even if it doesn't exist today, wouldn't ultimately humans, some humans figure out a way to ruin that? Mm. <laughs> for their own benefit there's I mean, always a loophole in the system there's going to be donald trump's throughout the rest of time <laughs> totally but should the fact that some people are always going to be looking to hack systems mean that none of the rest of us get to have or try functional systems you know no i don't yeah no i don't think I, so but i'm just wondering wouldn't wouldn't the people then who game the system and then end up winning from the new system that they've gamed then sort of ruin it for the majority not necessarily. It's only if we let them ruin it, you know? Okay. So great. 10 people game the system and 2 billion people have a functional society. You know, right, <laughs> like, right. I mean, it like, <clears throat> I think we have such, it's interesting because it makes me think about like notions of like, like we're bringing Foucault now, right? Like crime and punishment. <laughs> and like, what does it mean to have, <laughs> to regulate behavior? And to have norms in society. And we have this concept that like, well, everyone kind of has to behave in very similar ways. And that's how we, I mean, that's the rule of law. The rule of law undergirds a lot of what enables capitalist systems to this day. What if we just made a different type of agreement where some people are going to, it's like that meme where you've got like, good, bad, neutral, and then from like chaotic to order is there's, there's always going to be some bad chaos there's going to be some good chaos <laughs> we all know that friend who's right. still like chaos chaos monster what if we said we don't have to control the way everybody is but we're going to make the most functional society for the most number of people is that i'm not sure that capitalism solves for any of any of this stuff like i don't know if this is about economic system right and it doesn't need to i i, I guess what i'm looking for is if we don't have capitalism what mm-hmm. is what is the and and the, the the theory on the minority and on Twitter, I shouldn't say the minority that allowed a group of people on Twitter want to burn the system down. That's mm. fine. When you burn it down, then though, what do you plan on building? What is what is what is next? Because we can't just burn it down and say let's just let chaos take over. Because oh, for sure, theoretically, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of how we got questions. here. Yeah. So yeah, these are different questions. Though the question of will some people gain whatever system we come up with is different than what's the system we want to come up with. So right. it's interesting. I mean, I think we can look, we can look to history for the system we want to come up with, and we can also make new experiments. And so I've been really influenced by a, a book I've been reading recently called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is this really interesting book by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a botanist and indigenous sort of herbalist, basically, like deeply understands plants and ecosystems, both like from a PhD and indigenous perspective. And she has so much to say in her book about relationship and responsibility and what it means to be responsible for the relationships we have to people and place around us. So like we're all dropped on this planet 
what does that mean? Are we rugged individualists and nobody else matters and sorry planet? Or are we actually responsible to other people who we encounter and the place that we got dropped into? And I think that there's a lot of potential for creating more functional systems when we actually have this responsibility and relationship point of view, which is not like a new thing we have to invent. We can actually just look back <laughs> to indigenous wisdom. I mean, it's the basis uh, of all religions and <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and I think theoretically, some, yeah. And, and, you know, an argument against capitalism would say that it, it incentivizes this more individualist. I'm not my brother's keeper kind of point of view or behavior or attitude that then kind of correlates with like fiscal conservatism, right? Versus an under a world understanding that would say, well, actually, I, I am my brother's keeper, and my brother's my keeper, and this goes, and this extends, and like the planet provides for me and is responsible for taking care of me as an animal being on it, and therefore I am responsible <laughs> to it, and yeah. it, it's just a really, and there's so many variations, and I'm sure I'm bastardizing, right, and the uh, the the wisdom here because i'm just scratching the surface but i think yeah. i think there's systems that we can put in place that actually ask us to fundamentally reevaluate our relationship to each other which actually which would not mean that we all have to get paid the same and like nobody can innovate or and come up with new businesses like those can coexist we can believe that we deserve to be in a relationship with each other and have your bake shop, right? Have your podcast, have your thing that you want to do as part mm -hmm. of your personal contribution to the world. And John, to your point earlier, there, yes, there will always be chaos people, <laughs> you know, who are, who are interested in hacking our gaming system. And if we let the fear of chaos people keep us from ever experimenting with new systems, which is different than like, you know, actual physical and, you know, safety. But if we let the fear of that keep us from experimenting, we already have chaos people in our current system. I mean, mm -hmm. just think about the epidemic of gun violence, right? That's just one right. <laughs> axis that we could look at, right? And so it's not that we've, it's not like we're coming from something so functional, unfortunately. So I think, Again, we agree. I think I, hold, I hold, completely agree with you. We felt more of a, a personal responsibility to our fellow man, to our environment, to the living, breathing things around us. That would be much better for all of us, regardless of what economic system we have. But then I'll go back to Adam Smith, who is, to some people, the father of capitalism. And before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiment. And in that, he argued for what a truly virtuous person is. And he defined that as someone who's mindful of taking actions on their own self-interest, while at the same time, considering the impact of those actions on the interests of the larger whole to which they are also connected. So is that not sort of a paraphrasing of, of what you just said? I mean, and, it is, but is that the system we're currently living in in capitalism? Not really. <laughs> I mean, no, but that's I, why I don't, I don't right think we live idea. in capitalism. This isn't, we don't live in capitalism today. Right. What we're right, being told yeah. is capitalism is, is not what we're living today. We're living in plutocracy and a corporatism. That's the, that's mm. the economic system we live in. And we're being told that it's capitalism and told that we're un-American. If we argue that what we have today mm. is bullshit, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. we're not, it's like, it's almost like, I think a lot about, I equate it to a, 
Judge Judy's book, Don't Pee on My Leg and Tell Me That It's Raining. I think a lot of people are telling us, this is capitalism. Mm -hmm. You got to love it because this is America. And if you don't love it, then you're un-American. But it's not capitalism because the rich can game the system for themselves and make things easier for themselves. And that's why when we have a hard economic time like like COVID, the ones who were already rich get richer and benefit. And the ones who were already poor struggle even more. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's capitalism. I think that's plutocracy. I think I think it's why Congress people can have Cadillac healthcare plans, Democrats, Republicans, Socialists, whatever, and the rest of us got to struggle to figure out how to make ends meet with our healthcare, especially if we have something mm-hmm. dire. That's not capitalism. That's that's a perversion of it, and we're being told otherwise. Right. I think you mentioned the idea of incentivizing and what we incentivize. And this is something that we talked about with Laura on last week's episode. I'm going to say it that way because although it was, <laughs> that's how it'll be months ago, <laughs> that's how it'll play out. But this whole idea of what do we incentivize mm-hmm. and capitalism. And I think that even in the perverted form of capitalism, what we have today, we incentivize profit and winning success are these things that are really incentivized. I mean, we were talking about the kind of the success porn that's proliferated out on the internet. So what do we incentivize so that one, people do feel like they're part of the collective whole. Now I'm thinking about Borg and Star Trek, but anyway. (laughs) But we feel like we're part of the collective, right? The whole group, and we're we're adding to the group. But at the same time, we also feel autonomous, and I can mm-hmm. make decisions that benefit me. And what do we start to incentivize, right? Do we start handing out gold stars to people <laughs> for their their work towards the collective, towards the whole, and the environment, or whatever that may be? Or is there something else we would we would incentivize? it's really easy to incentivize one thing. The one thing is money. And then that one thing gets you everything else. Right. 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 It's the proxy. And it's, I mean, it's so interesting. Uh, I've just gone so deep into the study of money in the last couple of years. So pull me out. This is just way too weird, but like money has these, uh, has some functions that it performs for us. I won't go into you know the whole sort of nerdy analysis, but <laughs> but some nerdiness. Yeah. <laughs> well, nerdy. money money enables it enables accounting, it enables evaluation, and it enables exchange. Right. So David's right. Like money kind of is the thing that gets you all the other stuff, and so it's interesting because back to this idea of incentivizing. Right now, profit is incentivized because it's the thing that gets you money which mm-hmm. yes gets you all the other things like that's the return everyone's looking on they're like give me a financial return and then i can do everything else that i want with it we've seen this and i think you get a ton of observation on this point from the anti-capitalist crews that then you see people say well great i got a return on my investment i'm just going to go make more money with that i'm going to like i'm just going to take that money and make more money with it and it becomes this sort of like self-perpetuating cycle of like money be getting money and the money doesn't trickle down. Reagan was wrong, you know? <laughs> and actually we have a much more functional economy when money that you get then goes to support your local business owner and we're, you know, buying things from each other and then money's circulating. And that's a slightly different incentivization. If, if I get money and I decide that I'm going to use some of it for financial returns, but some of it for social return, right? Or I'm thinking about, well, I want to actually put this back into the system. 
both because there's things I want, but also because I'm incentivized to spend my money with people now, you know, as opposed to holding on to it. You know, and so I think like at a at a personal level, when we're starting to think about well, how do we create a different how do we create a different system that works better, a version of capitalism or whatever we're gonna call it that is more functional for people, or if we get closer to what capitalism was supposed to be. Yeah, I think there's that question of how do we incentivize people thinking about not just financial returns, but social returns or interrelationship returns, if you want to be, if you want to describe it like that. And then I'm thinking about the, with companies, right, incentivized to get financial returns. And we're starting to see the beginning of what's called this triple bottom line with companies that I'm sure y'all have heard about this idea of what are your profits? What are your people returns and what are your planet returns? So don't just talk about what's happening with the money. Talk about how your company is impacting these other major parts of people's experience in the world that we live in. I think that's a, yeah. I, I know millennials get bastardized a lot. They get beat up a lot in personal finance media as well, but I love avocado toast. But I think that's mm-hmm. one of the other great things that they brought is that they're they're expecting that the companies that they work for, that's their sort of the generation that required it. If, if I'm going to work for you, what is your actual social mission? What mm. is the good that you're doing? And, and I've seen a significant change in companies implementing that yeah. to some degree, maybe not very well, or and maybe a lot of it is performative, but some of it is 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 gaining traction that I think the millennials are part of the table. I need you need to do something, I need to feel passionate about what you're doing. And I need you to as a company to do something good socially, not just try to get profits hand over fist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as you're talking, I'm wondering if the incentive trying to incentivize people caring about other people isn't necessarily the right way to phrase that. Because it's sort of in my mind, when you say incentivize, it means, okay, I'm going to get some kind of financial reward for me wanting to take care of my fellow man. Maybe Mm. it's not an incentive. Maybe it's more of a... Well, maybe the incentives aren't only financial though. I think think that's the like thing to start shifting. Like, What does it mean that an incentive is social. And when I'm thinking social, I can also say like, I have the best biggest group of friends ever. and We would do anything for each other. I mean, what's better than that? Right? right. Like, like, so that's a social incentive because here we are, like we actually assume that incentives could be financial. How do we reset our assumptions so that there's like actually different core incentives we're working but on? Perhaps? That's more of education. Don't you think than it is? David looks so excited right now. Um, Well, it just, I I don't don't know why, but this popped into my head. And I don't know, folks, if you are fans of Black Mirror or Mm. if Hadassah, if you've watched Black Mirror, but there's an episode and I'm going to forget the name of the woman, Ron Howard's daughter. There's an episode where the major social exchange is through likes on a platform like Instagram, right? So the more likes you have, the more likely people are to to want to be friends with you, want to do things socially with you. The more likes you have, or the, the, the higher your rating is, I think it's like a zero to 10 scale, but the higher your rating is, the more likely you're going to be able to get into a nicer home, get lower rent on 
a property or or mortgage discounts on your mortgage, all of that. So they kind of switched. They kind of, I think maybe in this particular episode, kind of switched up the idea Mm. that it doesn't have to be money. It can be something like this. That sounds like it goes completely (laughs) off the rails. I'll say that. It's a very interesting episode to watch. But we do have to kind of think about what is what is the actual means of exchange that we're going to use, because then I think that that will be the thing that people will try to go for, right? So if we know that wanting to have the biggest group of friends or being able to say I have a huge group of friends is the thing that people, society in general now values that above all else, well, mm-hmm. then people will try to do whatever they can to have that bigger group of friends so they have that status and that the appearance to everyone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I know that's that kind of, to me, it, it, it does kind of chase down a negative path, right? Of people are going to sacrifice and do all else to get to that one thing. But I'm curious, we talked about rich people using their money to get rich and then just not doing the work. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's an inherently in our brain, right? Our bodies tell us to use as little brain power as possible to get the mm-hmm. most value, right? It's why we will eat a pound of sugar, even though it's bad for us. It's because our body is saying sugar is good for us and you don't have to do a whole lot of work to get this sugar. Mm. Right? So, it just tastes so good though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I also, we're going down philosophical paths. Again. <laughs> it's good. No, but, but when we're asking about the design of economic systems, it's inherently philosophical, right? right. And using the framework of incentives could also be misleading us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder if there's other frameworks that we could use. And I think about incentives a lot, both because I'm a behaviorist, but also because to me, incentives are so clearly kind of baked into the capitalist system, but it's like these negative incentives, do this or else. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so, and I think David, that's a bit what you're, what you're talking about. And I wonder if there was positive incentives right? Like if there wasn't and or else, because right now in our current model, there's figure out something you're good at and go make the most money at it you can, or else you're going to be hungry and have no house and no one will love you and it'll, and you'll die and da, 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 right? So what if, what if that wasn't actually going to happen to anybody? What if there was no or else? And instead it was go figure out something you're good at and make money at it so that you can be really actualized and fulfilled and do something interesting and solve a problem we need solved and bring some other people along with you, right? Like something beautiful and tell a story needs to be told, right? Like the, the positive formulation of incentivization. So is that something, is, is that then there, there's like a, there's a baseline of a yeah. social safety, Universal social net. And maybe are we maybe getting into the, we're getting into uh, UBI. yes. Ba- yeah. Yeah. You just said it. <laughs> universal basic income is that maybe where we're at now in our evolution of of humanity that we do need to provide a universal basic income to provide everybody that opportunity to be self-actualized and the benefit Mm -hmm. is not to let people float in their backyard pool all day long and 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 mooch off the rest of us but more so to let people be self-actualized and be the best that they can be at what they're inherently good at which that should trickle down to everybody, right? Yeah. I mean, Laura, again, she's not here, but Laura lives in in PEI in Canada. We met back when I used to live in, in Toronto and was touring art in Montreal. One of the things that really stood out to me when I, you know, and this was 20 years ago. <laughs> wow. But 
when I lived there that so many of my friends and colleagues who were artists and cultural makers were able to get grants, you know, small to actually quite large grants to produce their bodies of work. And so this wasn't universal basic income, but what it was, was a cushion for them to create something of value, right? To put something into the world that they felt needed to be put in there. And the government, I believe, has, you know, reduced their grant program, not like the U.S. has, where we slashed the NEA and now we only have creative capital and whatever, but it's not quite as robust as it used to be. But it really was this way of financially enabling people to do some of this work, right? And so I, so I feel like Laura or even other places in the world, right, Laura speaking for Canada and other places in the world are going to have a little bit of a different concept around what it means to give people some space and room to try to develop work, right? Like here in the U.S., if you want to, you want to develop art, if you, there's not a ton of funding for development. If you want to start up a business, I mean, David's right, it's easier than it used to be. But if you want to start up a big business and hire people and get into the VC angel investing world, 97% of that funding goes to white straight men, you know, so, and that's all private, right? So it's, I mean, again, back to this idea of like socialism for who it's really standing out to me thinking about how we don't live in capitalism. We live in some version of it and that isn't very functional for a lot of people. Um, Agreed. And it's, and it's fair to be critical of it and anything that leaves so many people behind, in my opinion. And it's also fair to be critical of communism and socialism and other systems that have been non-functional and have left people behind, right? Or created space for people to manipulate systems. And it, I mean, I think it's a really, it's a really good question. Like, can we make a system that can't be manipulated? Probably not. (laughs) Because a system that couldn't be manipulated would be so mechanized and controlled by other forces that it would probably be kind of creepy (laughs) you know like we lose so much of our autonomy yeah we're in some sort of dystopian (laughs) that's right yeah another black mirror episode (laughs) yeah 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 we touched on the idea of universal basic income and kind of one of the things that you're mentioning here hadassah and this is something that we've kind of we have thrown around a couple of times with some of our groups of friends and this you know this this idea that universal basic income would allow people to actually do what it is that they are good at, what they want to do, and what the world needs. Now, that's only three mm-hmm. parts of Ikigai, but mm-hmm. it's important parts, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think the statistic that keeps getting shared over and over again is roughly 70% of Americans go to work every day to a job that they just hate, mm-hmm. right? They don't enjoy going to work, they don't like their job. But they do it. Why? One, because they have to put food on the table for their kids or a roof over their own head. Or, you know, there's a whole litany of reasons that they are doing it because they have to, not Mm. because they want to. And how much less stress would we have? How much less anxiety? How many more social issues would not be as prevalent as they are today if people actually enjoyed their daily life? even just 50% more or 25% more than what they do today because they're actually working in a field that they enjoy working in or working for a boss or at a company that they enjoy working at rather than feeling that they have to make the money, like you said, or or else, right? If those or else's are gone, then we have a, a happier version of society. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a I question on how, like, oh, go ahead. No, I'm just, I, all I said was, I see that. Yeah, right. And so it's this, like, underlying economic kind of situation that then has incentivized people to work jobs they don't want to have. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking. Like, for me, it was probably, like, 12 years ago at this point. I just determined, I was like, I'm not going to work anymore at jobs I hate. Like I will, I just, we're done. <laughs> no more of that. I certainly had jobs that I hated. They, it was like the Beyonce song. They were wrecking my soul. I'm like, no, you can't. I won't do it anymore. And started on a path of, well, what does it look like to only find jobs that are interesting and seem and seem worth my time? And I think a lot of people have that moment or want to have that moment when they're on a financial freedom or financial independence journey. Right? They're looking for like, how do I relate to work differently? And something I've been thinking a lot about is, well, I've been thinking about the difference between financial independence, financial freedom, and there's there's a lot of definitions out there. I'd be curious on y'all's. My hot take, tell me if I'm wrong, my hot take is that financial independence is the numbers. It's what's in your bank account. Financial freedom is how you're thinking about it and how you're relating to money, regardless of if you're financially independent or not. And so I think a lot of people are looking for that financial freedom so that they can contribute to the world. They can do a job they want to do, right? They can balance between spending time with their kids or their spouse, their communities, and doing labor, right? right? And so it breaks my heart to hear that 70% statistic because there's actually so much like creativity and coolness (laughs) that people could bring to the world if they weren't being squeezed like that. Right. Yeah. No, I I don't think that I've thought about the differences of financial freedom and financial independence to that degree but I would I think that what you're saying makes sense when I think about the people who we know who do make 40 fifty thousand dollars a year we know some of them are much more financially free than people that we know who earn multiple six figures in a, in a household who mm-hmm. are not financially free I'm thinking about something very prevalent right now and there's a lack of financial freedom there so I'm wondering as we're talking, about universal basic income, it's not to that degree quite yet. But are we thinking that maybe the Nordic countries have sort of the I don't I don't want to say the perfect system, but the most ideal system today? Because they have a lot more, much more healthcare. They provide family leave, familial support. You know, we have children that provide you more tax rebates and, and credits, way more than the United States does. I don't know that the people in the Nordic countries have the option to just say up and quit their job and go try something else because that's what their passion is. So maybe it's not to that degree, but there's much more of a social mm-hmm. safety net there for the things that we say we celebrate, such as life and birthing of children and um, mm-hmm. family and all that kind of uh, and health than what we have here in the United States. So I'm wondering if maybe that's maybe the next step for us to sort of push our society to the ultimate goal, panacea. I mean, in this model that we're loosely developing, right, where people are able to have a bit more autonomy in their life to make decisions about their work and how they spend their time, I certainly think that there's there's models in the EU that hit that because they take care of these underlying mm-hmm. human needs, right? Everything from family leave and onward, right? They don't have the same student loan systems that we have. And, and I know some people will argue, well, Where's the innovation coming out of these countries? And da 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 da. And I would just say, number one, IKEA is from a Nordic com- com- country and they're the best and are very innovative. So don't tell me it's impossible. And number two, what if you just don't care? American 
there's so much mythology about like we have to work and produce and like be at it hardcore till we're 65 or have a heart attack, whatever comes first. And like, oh my goodness, what about enjoying life with the people that matter to us? Yeah. Like, where'd that go? So <laughs> no angry. matter what your system is. <laughs> I saw the headline of an article today. I wish I would have read it, but it's something to the effect of studies have shown that it's really, really hard for people to do nothing, like to mm. get them to sit down, to do nothing and just think and be alone and with themselves is really, really challenging. But there mm. are so many benefits that come from it, mental, physical, emotional, all sorts of benefits, that creativity. I wish I would have read that article, but mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what are you're you getting at. Are you meditate, John? Is, that, is this your coming out as a meditator? Oh yeah, we, we meditate. Well, I shouldn't say that. We, I, we used to meditate all the time. With the flux of our life right now, meditating is, is sort of a luxury. But we're huge fans of, of meditating for that, in part for that reason, yeah. being able to, gosh, when we first started meditating, trying to do three minutes of not thinking about anything was really, really hard. I think we okay. both got to like 15, maybe 20 minutes where we, but then now we've like, we probably, we've not been exercising that muscle. So, but yeah, I think there's huge benefits to that. And, 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 and if people, more people could do that, had the luxury of doing that, had the privilege of doing that, then to your point, maybe, more people would be happier, could be more innovative, could do execute more of the things that they want to execute on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. kind of maybe steer the conversation back in the direction that we, we started out with. And that was this idea of what do we do at a personal level, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the focus of the podcast is, is helping folks find some action items for themselves or things to, to do themselves. And and some of the stuff that we've talked about has been very global in scale, mm. right? And yeah. it's, it's, a lot, it's, it's hard for, for individuals to say, okay, I'm going to change in the system and incentivize something else. But what do we do as, in, as individuals? How do we, if I'm either an anti-capitalist or I'm a capitalist that doesn't like the way the system has been bastardized today, what what do we start to do? Yeah. So one of the things I love about y'all's podcast is the fact that you bring it to to do. So I'm glad that we're here. One of the things that, again, Laura is in my mind and I'm hearing, I'm pulling from something she said in a recent podcast of ours, but this is something I think about too, which is that for so many people, myself included at various times in my life, I've had a kind of vague personal philosophy right? So I want things to be better. And I don't want capitalism to ruin everything. Okay, great. What does that mean? And so a thing that you can do is you can start to get as specific as possible about what doing better means to you. Do you think that it means doing better about the climate globally, in your country, in your state? Which climate, right? Are you thinking about reproductive rights? Are you thinking about food justice, right? You can go on and on. And I don't encourage people to make an overwhelming long list of every possible activist topic. You could do that, but then you're going to need to go back and like, look at your top, like three to four topics. What lights you up? What do you have conversations with people about? What do you find yourself falling into little research or like video watching holes about? Because you want to know more. That's how you know what really, really is going to matter most to you. And if you can start to identify your like your top values or things you want to change or issues, then you can focus in on those in terms of the actions that you're going to take. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly to David's point, it's like change the world. Well, that's impossible. You know, change how, you know, change how recycling is picked up in my neighborhood from, 
you know, to once a week instead of every other week, right? So people recycle more and there's right. less plastic going into our river or whatever. That's a thing that you can do. And so I'm always encouraging people to get as specific as possible on like on what that stuff is. You got to move from vague to specific is the the words of Laura in my mind. <laughs> you know, and and for me, the thing that I think about is I do think there's a ton of value if you can in finding work that you are interested in. And I'm not going to, I don't think that we should just do whatever we want and the money will come. I'm not, I'm not sure that's true, to be honest, in our current incarnation of our system. And I actually don't think it's ethical just to tell people to drop everything and, and take that route. But I do think there's a ton of value in finding work that you are interested in and being paid a living wage for it. And especially within the queer community, I feel that I, I hear so many people that I work with and, and colleagues and, and friends you know, we'll say things like, man, like, it's not fair. Like, there's not enough money. I'm not paid enough. There's so there's so many people who are underpaid in our community and just across genders, across race, and of course, more impacted by marginalized genders and races. And so finding something you're interested in and get and advocating to get paid more for it. And if you had to pick one, Start with getting paid more for whatever you're doing and then look for the next thing that you're most interested in, especially because I, when queer people have money, we do good things with it, whether that is making sure that our oxygen masks are put on or we are like moving it back through the many communities that we're part of. And so I like I love and trust queer people. and I'm like, great, go make more money. <laughs> and because I think it's time to start acknowledging that regardless of the system that we're in and how you feel about it. And this is something I say in Ride Free Fearless Money all the time. You deserve to thrive and survive within it. So that's where it's like advocating for more resources and doing things that you think are more worthwhile are both worth it. So those are two practical things. I love all of that. And you know, I think the lesson I've learned from these two episodes, I think it's, I'm not going to, I'm going to bastardize it, but it's a, it's a Buddhist theory that once you once you name something you then mm. change it and you make it something that it otherwise is and i think what i'm learning from this discussion is well we might identify as capitalists and you identify as an anti-capitalist i'm not really sure where in theoretically philosophically we defer i feel like we're we're more alike in our opinions and beliefs about today's current system and what sh what should be the system or how things mm. should be, then then we disagree. And so I think that's sort of the lesson I'm taking from it. One of the personal lessons I'm taking from it. But I think you're you're totally right. What 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 Laura said on the, on the here as her as her to do is very reminiscent of what Tanya Hester said when we had her mm. on to talk about wallet activism. And you can't change the world as an individual. You can barely change your country. That's responsibility of other people who have much more leverage and power and, and money. But mm. you can change your community. And maybe even you know your city or your town or your, your 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 district. Figure out whatever it is you're passionate about and try to change your local world. So I, I love all that. I think when it comes to the label of capitalism or anti-capitalism or capitalist anti-capitalist, it's almost as as similar to Democrat versus Republican, right? Mm -hmm. We know that there are extremes on both ends that not a lot of people agree with, and there are people in the middle that. Unfortunately, right now, not a lot of people agree with because only the extremes are be, are the ones being talked about. And mm -hmm. I think there is some sort of 
whether it's a new experiment or capitalism 2.0 or socialism 2.0 or whatever it is i think that they're you're right that we have to we have to continue the experiment you know unfortunately these experiments are experiments that take decades or centuries to play out right this is not a sim although sometimes people will say we're in a simulation this isn't a simulation that we can run and put into a supercomputer and say oh you know this isn't going to work and and we get the answer in a couple Mm -hmm. of days right this is something that is going to take and the resolve that each of us has is what direction do we want the experiment to go in Mm -hmm. and how do we move ourselves in that direction in whatever way possible right so if i'm an employer and I believe in a more, a less capitalistic way of things uh, are as they are today. I'm going to be a kind of employer that maybe does prop up these or support these the, these three bottom lines. Right? I do focus on my people. I do focus on what the company is doing in the community globally or locally, and I do care about profit. Right? And I can't. And there is a way to care for all of those. And if we have more people being examples of that or mm-hmm. examples of where we want it to go, then we become the shining lights that attract more people to what is good. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and, and that's like the world of B Corps. That's the world of worker on co-ops. That's the world of self-organizing workplaces. Like I always, I like to call these out because there's, there's so many workplaces that are seeking to operate in these ways. And also we can start our own businesses and operate in these ways if that's what we want, right? Like we in the U.S. do have a lot of opportunity and leverage to do so. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because this is a topic that John and I are, we're seeing more information about B Corps. Mm. And, and and actually, you know, there's more work being done to support and find companies that are like that that want to do good in the in the world as well as make money because you can do both mm-hmm. you can make money and be a good a corporate citizen as a, as a company we're seeing more of that happen it's nice to see money being pushed in that direction right mm-hmm. and hopefully some of those who have made a lot of money millions hundreds of millions billions of dollars are cluing into that this is where venture capitalism is going. It's going to people of color. It's going towards queer folks. It's going towards social, socially conscious companies. And that can help pull things in the in a different direction with this experiment. Yeah. I know we have to wrap in just a minute or two, but any experiment we can we can start to understand where it's going by setting some like early stage metrics of what it is we want to see. How do I know this experiment is moving us in the right direction? Not not my end state, but what indicators are out there that will tell me this experiment is right? And I think those are some of the most interesting things that we can come up with. And we can also come up with them based on our complaints, <laughs> right? So if we're saying, all right, you know what? I'm just so frustrated that this system excludes marginalized voices. Okay, well then in our experiment of a new system, capitalism 2.0, social capitalism, whatever, (laughs) I will know that we're on the right track when I am starting to hear input on design of the system or see engagement from marginalized voices. And I've defined marginalized voices as X, Y, and Z type of people, Mm -hmm. right? Like we, there's so much power in going from vagosity to specificity when we want to take agency over making change in our lives and in the world around us. So yeah, we don't, I don't know that we 
have the perfect system. But one thing that I am inspired, like as an American, as someone who left the country and came back, I came back in part because I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to see about how I can make this place better. Like, I don't think love it, love it and leave it as bullshit. Love it and make it better is what we should all be striving for, right? A better democracy, like a better system in which all of us can figure out how to like thrive and do good things with each other. And so just like we don't have a perfect democracy, we don't have a perfect economic system. We're devising it, you know, and we're, we're so many smart people are thinking about what's not working and then what we might experiment and try. And that gives me hope. Yeah. Hard as it is. <laughs> yeah. We need to prop those people up. Mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I think, I feel like, I feel like we have more of a resolution and sort of like a next step. And I think ultimately, you know, we, we've decided that again, it's, it, it comes down to us. What can we do in our own sphere of influence to actually to affect some change? And for some of us, it's going to be more noticeable than others, but we each have a role that we can play. And I think you both articulated, uh, hopefully we've all articulated something that we can, that, that everybody can take away. And just a reminder, folks, it can't be done in 280 characters on Twitter. <laughs> the world is not going to be solved by a tweet. The world's <laughs> issues are not going to be solved by a tweet. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so Hadass, before we wrap up, do you mind sharing where our listeners can find you and Laura everywhere on the interwebs? Yeah, of course. So I have a blog called Ride Free Fearless Money. I'm also on Instagram. I'm experimenting with some videos, so I'll go on to TikTok shortly as the world turns. But Ride Free Fearless Money, there's tons of free resources, especially for folks who are progressive, anti-capitalist, artists, queers, weirdos, people who really don't trust the system but want to figure out their money anyway. That's what Ride Free Fearless Money is for. There's digital courses. I do quarterly workshops with individuals and with small business owners. And I have some limited coaching spots open. And then Laura and I have a podcast called Bottom Lines Top Dollars. And so we just wrapped up season three. Yeah. And so that season, we talk a lot about practical steps you can take to thrive here in capitalism. So if you are listening to this podcast here with the debt-free guys and you're like, okay, I'm the Queer Money Podcast. Like, now what do I do? I want more guidance. Bottom line's top dollars recent season, like really drills into everything from getting a job that doesn't suck to using your money in ways that feel more ethical to you. So I love the practicality that you two bring. I'm so thankful that you had me on your podcast twice. So thank you to all your (laughs) listeners and to the two of you. It's it's such a pleasure to talk to both of you. Likewise. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Good having you. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you again, Hadassah, for coming back to the show and bringing the spirit of Laura with you and helping us come up with some next steps that we can all apply in our lives. Thank you, our listeners, for listening to another episode. Here's your queer money takeaway from the show. Hadassah suggested pick one, two, or three things that you're passionate about and see what you can do to move the needle in your local community, your group of friends, and your neighborhood. Over time, it'll all compound just a little bit like interest. Then listen to season three of Bottom Line Top Dollars with Hadassah and Laura for more information on how you can move the needle more for yourself and others. Finally, join us next week when we talk about crowdsourced investing with crowdsourcing platform WeFunder and one of its clients, Propeller. Have a great week.
From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.